Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. I'm Kevin Mazza. I'm Anna Ryan. And today we're going to talk about pre-hospital stroke care and uh, what we can do as paramedics, as pre-hospital providers to improve stroke care and improve outcomes. So what we know is that, and for cardiac arrest, that time is muscle, and the same thing kind of applies to stroke pre-hospitally. So the question that we're asking today is we know that, or at least we there's an impression, I would say, that what ALS actually does for strokes is somewhat minimal. We establish IV access, we can uh, start a stroke alert. Um, so we have to kind of encourage and cultivate a world where uh, BLS can do a little bit more. And then we're also going to talk about what we can do uh, to kind of expand our scope pre-hospitally. So um, to your mind, Kevin, what do you think so far we can do uh, to expand uh, what we can do for strokes? What, like, what, do you, what do you think, first of all, what do you think of the goal should be for stroke care? And then what can we do to uh, kind of make that better uh, definitely the goal is early recognition early intervention because that's what we know works so i think we do a okay job we could definitely do better but we're especially on the emt and als level entry level als you kind of learn the cincinnati scale and that's that's really kind of it you can find the big the big quad major you know major uh, major vessel occlusion but i think more nuanced signs and symptoms of stroke like dizziness headache projectile vomiting abnormal gait um, eye drift, motor drift, any abnormality, like there's a lot more nuance to stroke that we, short of researching yourself, like you're not going to get at your base level education. So I think a lot of strokes might be missed pre-hospitally from a lack of recognition of these more subtle signs. You just chalk it up to like, oh, it's just an old lady with dizziness, you know, and uh, who has a history of AFib, it doesn't take any kind of blood thinner. And you got to learn to put the pieces together, uh, just increase your index of suspicion of something neurological going on. More can be done. I don't think we do enough, but what we do is, in the scope we're provided, we do okay. Couldn't do better. So as with everything else, the the, the key to kind of changing how stroke care is performed is going to be education, right? So at the BLS level, you know, we tend to be taught, you know, well, if it's a right-sided stroke, then the left side is going to be weak. And if it's a left-sided stroke, the right side is going to be weak. And there's very little uh, kind of nuance that's put into how we teach it. Right. So I, I know that in some of the classes I've taught, I've introduced things like, you know, where Wernicke's and Broca's area is, how speech is affected and things like that. But Anna, I'm wondering, how do you think we can actually adjust or change how we teach stroke uh, starting at the BLS level? And then what how do we change how we, I guess, should teach stroke to paramedics as well? I think we should actually start to like kind of extend on what uh, Kevin said is uh, start to educate people on the nuances of what a stroke actually does. So on the uh BLS side on the on EMT level, we're not teaching you know what drugs could give uh, like a risk to someone having a stroke, someone who's come off their blood thinners for no reason. What those blood thinners are, what other conditions would they be taking those blood thinners for? Um, we're also not teaching anything about the environment around this, the the patient. So if I have a patient who is no longer on blood thinners, who has been dizzy for a couple of days, who you know is off of their regular routine or their behavior is off, uh, according to the family. Um, we're not taking that into consideration either. So including the patient, while we're patient-centric, which is nice, we do have to start to kind of include our scene. We do a scene size up, we do scene safety, which is fine. But after we're done with those things, what do we do? Right, and I also tend to think that, you know, we don't teach comorbidities well at all. At all. We know that, you know, if someone has cardiovascular disease, they're going to be predisposed to a stroke. So if someone is taking, say, um, you know, simvastatin, instead of thinking like, oh, well, it's just a cardiac medication, so we're worried about that. I don't know that we actually um, kind of import to students enough that this patient's going to be predisposed to a CVA. And then, you know, again, assessing for recent history of falls and things like that. So 
as far as education is concerned, that, that's something that needs to be evaluated. You know, we have to look at how much time do we actually spend teaching these people? Because I know, you know, for a lot of EMT courses, you know, neuro is is one lecture. Neuro is one lecture. So, and, it's, hey. right. and it has a huge impact on outcomes. It has a huge impact on whether this person goes home with some semblance of function and a quality of life or they go to an LTAC or nursing home or need nursing care to, to get through their days. Uh, I think we de-emphasize. I think we've de-emphasized stroke, and I think it's something that we can make a huge impact on. Well, right, and we've so we focused on for stroke scales. We focused on easier over more complicated. So we know that the Cincinnati scale. So the Cincinnati scale, um, and this is coming from Cummer uh, et al. This is out of Weill Cornell. They found that it's about the Cincinnati scale is about twenty five percent, or it, it's specific enough to find about twenty five percent of large vessel occlusions, which is significant. That's a pretty high number. Um, there are other available scales that can be implemented pre-hospitally. Now the NIH scale is kind of labor intensive. Um, to do a proper NIH scale can probably take about 10 or 15 minutes. And pre-hospitally, that's probably not a time frame that we really have available to us. Right. Right. So that's that's kind of a concern. But you have other things like the Los Angeles scale. Um, you have a Miami scale. And, like, they're all, writ large, they're all sort of similar. Um, they all have their variables. Um, but I, I think that's that's going to be the first thing is finding a scale that actually works better. And it might Got actually. One. What's that? Got one. I'm ready to hear it. Go. It's the race scale. The race scale. What is the race scale, Daniel? The race scale is designed to find large vessel occlusions, the um, the ones that are really, really devastating, um, the ones that make a, that we can actually go in and take these people to thrombectomy to a CNI suite. Um, this is a uh, study that was done um, back in um, 20... 2015. This 2015. is 2015. Um, thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're all looking at the same document. It, it's called the Rapid Arterial Occlusion Evaluation Scale, or RACE. And what it's designed to do is it predicts the presence of LVOs. And LVOs are the ones that are the MCAs, the big the big clots that cause big problems for your patients and have bad outcomes. Right, it's a high level of morbidity and mortality, and it's... It, Right. Stuff that's actually kind of fixable, too, but they're and they basically, big injuries. Right. They basically took the NIH scale and they boiled it down to something that could be done in pre-hospital. Um, and they've actually found that a Cincinnati plus the race scale actually has a good correlation to NIH. If you're positive Cincinnati and you've got a, D, you've got a race score above four or five, depending on who you talk to, you, your NIH, you're, you're correlating with an NIH score that's high and somebody that needs intervention at a comprehensive center where they can go in and do thrombectomy. <clears throat> so clarify that a little bit more because you say the race scale at four or five, but what, just for for the audience, okay, to, to the go, go through the numbers. So okay, we, we know like we know like you know we we're familiar with all Glasgow, we're familiar with Cincinnati. But. Sure. Um, so Cincinnati is pretty easy. You know, facial droop, arm drift, slurred speech. Um, there's another wrinkle to that that actually works really well for for basic level and first responder providers, and basically it, all it adds is balance and and vision loss in one or more eyes. Um, this is called the BFAST scale. And what it does is it picks up the roughly 14% of strokes that get missed on a FAST or a Cincinnati scale. Uh, what it, what uh, FAST does is it measures facial palsy, arm motor function, leg motor function, gaze and aphasia or agnosia. And it scores it one, zero to two in each area. Um, and what happens is they, it showed in this uh, cohort that they used, which was about 650 patients, uh, it showed a real good correlation with NIH. And um, 
the large vessel occlusions were detected in about 20% of the patients. Um, and the race scale above or at five is pretty specific and pretty sensitive for a large vessel occlusion. And these are the people that are going to need that if we don't get them fixed are going to need severe nursing care, a lot of work. There are a lot of rehab. Um, but you know, if you can take them to a place that's a comprehensive stroke center where they can get thrombectomy and get that clot taken out, these people have very good outcomes. They do extremely well. Well, I think something that's important to note, too, is also for a comprehensive center. So classically, we're taught that the stroke window is about three hours, right? From That's from, changed, from, too. Right, but that's what I'm saying. Like, I still think that the classic educational model is from time of onset, you know, time zero to when an intervention has to be performed is usually about three hours. Um and I can go back anecdotally uh, in 2011 uh, when I was when I was working in a different city. Um, you know, our window was like 72 hours. That you know, my my shop didn't really care almost like when you had your stroke. They're like, we'll get rid of it. Just send them our way. Right. That was and, and then, that was a groundbreaking. That was groundbreaking back then because right. you know most people looked at stroke. Look, when I started as a paramedic. There wasn't much anything you could do for a stroke. You started a line, you took them to the hospital, they went into the ED, and they sat there until neuro evaluated them, and then they went to rehab if they were good enough to go. Um, nowadays, we're starting to see that thrombectomy has a huge impact on outcomes. TPA and thrombectomy has really, um, the Dawn study has shown that these, that when these interventions are used in the appropriate people, in appropriate patients at the right times and in the right time frame, that going out to 24 hours after stroke symptoms start, uh, they're getting really, really good results. And we're talking, when we talk about good results, um, basically they measure it called the modified Rankin score. And the MRS basically gives you a score from zero to six. Zero, you are completely fine. You are, you require, you're completely independent living. Six is dead. So uh, these people are recovering with MRS scores of zero or one, meaning they have absolutely no deficits or they have very minimal deficits that they can manage individually. That is a huge game changer. So and let's because the whole point of this, the whole thesis of this is what we can do pre-hospitally. Um, I want to kind of expand on that a little bit for us. So we know that BLS can perform a Cincinnati scale. I from from everything from the race score and the BFAS score, I don't see a reason that we can't teach EMTs to to do those types of assessments. No, in the there's field. no reason why we shouldn't be able to. Right. So I think that's something. That, you know, again, if we're only doing one lecture for neuro, let's add another 20 minutes and teach them a different scale. Right. Um, and it's also probably something that we can put up in the truck, like when you see the facial droop things. Um, you know, every every ambulance that you see has a pediatric assessment score. I don't see a reason that we can't put up a sticker on the back of an ambulance that says, this is how you do a stroke assessment. So I think that's the first thing that we can do. No, absolutely. The, the second thing that is, is becoming, um, I don't want to say the second thing, this isn't really an order of hierarchy, um, but one of the things that's interesting is you are starting to see ambulances now that have CAT scans on them. Um, so mobile CTs, and effectively the way that a lot of these systems operate, is there is a dispatch for a stroke. The medic unit goes out, assesses the patient, determines that they are a candidate for this mobile stroke unit. The ambulance comes out. They have, uh, depending on the unit, you know, between a 6, 8, and 10 slice CAT scan. Um, and then the CAT scan is performed, and then they activate the stroke team. So it, um, uh, I think that this is something that is, um, it's theoretically, I think, it's a, an effective system. Um, I wonder about the the efficacy with especially if you're in 
you know, like a close environment to the hospital. I wonder how effective that would be. But I do think this is something that can kind of um, change a lot of uh, a lot of treatments, right? You determine that someone has an occlusion pre-hospitally just with a CT, and you can start the treatment uh, kind of out in the field. Sure. The idea the the idea of mobile stroke units, and there's about ten so far in the United States. Um, Germany's had them. Um, other places look at them. I think Australia has one as well, or two. Uh, is the idea of door to needle time, and we 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 have this, um, you know, there's evidence that shows a TPA does help in some cases. Um, the jury the jury may still be out on that, um, but we know that door to treatment time is important, and door to needle time is one of the big metrics that we look at. How soon after the onset of symptoms do we get that person to the drug or get them to thrombectomy? Um, in the idea of looking how to cut that door to needle time down as far as we possibly can, the idea comes, well, how do you get the door to the patient as quickly as possible? How do you get them to a primary stroke center to get this treatment right away? You bring the door to them. Right. And the other key to it is, is the separation between a comprehensive stroke center and a primary stroke center. Because Correct. again, I, and getting back to the education point, I think it's really easy to say that, you know, like we, we happen to be lucky in an area where every hospital that's around us is some kind of stroke center. In the whole state, I think there's only one that is not. Right, which is which is kind of I mean that's that's amazing. I mean that's, I, you know, and I, and just for just just for you know out there wondering what the designations are. Primary stroke center is basically we can you can bring the person in, we can give them TPA. They have some uh, rehabilitative resources. Uh, they can admit them for stroke care. Um, they don't generally do neurosurgery they do, or they, they don't have the ability to do it right there or they don't have the ability to do thrombectomy. Right. And there's, and, you know, there's, there's more discussion we can have about this where, you know, we can have patients who were stroke patients who end up getting like a bolt or a ventric place. And that's, that's more, uh, I think, in hospital than what we want to focus on. Um, I do want to think when, when we come down to stroke care too, we would talk about reducing door to balloon or not door to balloon, <laughs> door to needle time. Um, and we talk about bringing the door to the patient. Kevin, I'm wondering what your opinion would be on flying patients uh, to a comprehensive center based on their presentation. I mean, that, that all really, really, really depends on whether you're going to a primary or comprehensive. Because like you said, I don't have a CT scan machine in my little EC-135. But getting them to a uh, primary stroke center would always be preferred over a comprehensive because in the event of they're going to need... Uh, you're, ta you're talking Fly in lieu of flying. You bring them to a primary center instead of flying to a comprehensive center. If I could, if, if I could, any patient I suspect of having any kind of stroke, I would bring to a primary over a comprehensive just for the sake of I don't know the extent, and I don't, like we said, we don't know how effective TPA is, so clot retrieval might be the definitive care. So being in a helicopter, I have options abound about where I can go, especially in the area we live. And I routinely do fly from comprehensive to primary for strokes where TPA is not effective, they're outside of a window, or they review the CT scan and they need clot retrieval. So, so. what if, so hypothetically, you and I are, you're on the helicopter and I'm, uh, you know, I've got a patient in the field and you get on scene because I've called you for a stroke. And I tell you, hey, guess what? This guy was Cincinnati positive when he got here, ruled out his blood sugar. I ran a race score on him. He's got a race of seven. That's a significant score. That's signifying a large vessel occlusion. TPA only works on less than 10% of large vessel occlusions. If I bring you, if I let you fly him to a primary stroke center, what good's that gonna do? Or if you or if I say to you, 
your 15 minute flight time from a comprehensive center where you're going to get all the care and the patient has all the abilities that that everything they need to get that clot out. Why wouldn't you? If you want to err on the side of the patient, you bring them to the place that has the there's capable and then there's more capable. If you have the option of giving them to the more capable facility, you give them the more capable facility, especially, I mean, coming from a helicopter standpoint and where I'm at, I can I can go to multiple primary stroke centers within uh, just a couple minute extra minutes flight time. If we're talking saving time, if TPLA works on 10% and clot retrieval is the better choice, I'm going to get them to a place that is capable of neurosurgery doing clot retrieval. Right, and again, and this is this is all hypothetical. Like, there's no, there's there's too many things I think that actually have to happen for for this scenario. But I think you know w- we do have members in the audience who are in a situation where they don't, they're not surrounded. You know, their area is not awash with stroke centers. So that I think that question has to come up. Or like, what at, at what point? So this is actually really, I guess, the question I want to ask. At what point, to your mind, would a potential stroke patient fit flight criteria? Or or is there a time? Where that patient would fit flight criteria. Uh, top of my head, I really couldn't tell you. But go ahead. I'll <laughs> of t- course I'll he does. <laughs> go ahead, throw it at me. Look, I'm sorry. <laughs> my my pl- look, my place is a comprehensive center. We we focus on neuro. We we eat, drink, and sleep it. They eat uh, brains, is what he's saying. They, we, they, we are they brain, eat brains. We are brain people. Every <laughs> we 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 have squishy brains. We do things. Um, we give them away at the conferences. <laughs> So here's my thing. I'm going to these conferences. Here's a flight criteria for you. I've got a patient that is four hours out from a last no well time. I've got a high race score, which a race over five, five or better, has a 85% sensitivity, 65% specificity. That's from the AHA, from stroke. Um, And I know that TPA isn't going to work for this person, but I know that 45 minutes to an hour away driving is a comprehensive center. I know you can do that in 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. We're I'm talk- calling you. And I'm taking it. Oh, you're taking it. I'm coming. I'm already on my way. <laughs> Put that aircraft up in the air. I Listen, I've and this is I've flown. I've flown. I'll s- say it's a stroke semis. patient got hit by a car. You know, you yeah. don't <laughs> take it. Listen, I've I've flown neuros um, from a scene where they're like, hey, listen, we are out in the sticks of you know our great pine barrens or and I've flown stemmies that are greater than um, 30 minutes from your closest PCI center. It's. There's I there I don't see anything wrong with getting somebody to definitive care faster. And if that's clot retrieval, if that's PCI, if that's cardiothoracic surgery, if that's neurosurgery, if you have a faster way of getting there within your means, by all means, do it. I'm not going to complain. I love flying. <laughs> Call <laughs> me. <laughs> give, give me a shout. I'm not so, doing much anyway. So the other thing is, I, you know, and again, this is all hypothetical if you're too far away. But the reason that I, I think it's important to talk about is very recently, um, Nolte put out a thing um, for the American Heart Association. This is this is this year. It's 2018. Um, it's an early study shows that pre-hospital thrombolysis may actually improve outcomes. Now, the in, in Nolte's study, the patients that would be eligible are actually fairly few. Um, you know, it, it's a very, very specific cohort of patients. However, I do think it's interesting to explore that if you have a patient who's atraumatic and they're presenting with, you know, a unilateral deficit and, you know, we'll say like slurred speech, whatever, their last known wells within 90 minutes, since we're trying to reduce that dura needle, is that something that, you know, if we start hanging something like TPA, um, 
you know, or, or uh, now we have uh, like Tenecta Place that's actually been shown to be more effective than TPA. Is that something that we should start considering as paramedics carrying in the field, do you think? I'm going to say no. Okay. Um, not without a CT. You I'm, need I'm you need agree. that you need that non-contrast CT before you give TPA. <clears throat> you really got to know that it's not a bleed. So if, so he, I don't think that we I don't think right now that we're clinically good enough to suss that out. So here here's my pushback on that, and I, I arbitrarily I would agree with you like well if I don't know it's a bleed blah blah, blah because again I, I think that the key to it is going to be a good assessment right. So the most clandestine bleeds are going to be like subdurals that are times two days old, right. Which, all right, but again, you rule out recent history of trauma. My contention to this, and whether or not this is clinically sound, again, I don't know how much there is backing it up. So what's the worst thing that's going to happen if I have someone who, if I give them TPA and they have a bleed, what happens to them? What's the worst thing that happen to them? They die. Well, so they would have clinical symptoms, right, that would present. Right. They, would they, become, can, they can have, they'd be more they can have a right lot so. of complications. They can have spontaneous, There's, they can start bleeding. So throw in TXA. But then it's almost like, well, you know, I wanted to get rid of the rats, so I bought the cat, but the cat's a problem. Well, sure, so but, 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 this this is, to get this. but this is my point is I how what kind of percentage do you think we're talking about? Like, so it, and I, I, I don't necessarily disagree that you want to have a non-contrast CT and that's where the mobile stroke units come in. Right. Sure. So but my my contention is going to be what percentage of patients are we going to determine that they're they're eligible for you know TPA or tenecta place in the field, and they end up actually being a clandestine bleed. How many patients is that actually going to affect? We think, and because the real question is like, is it going to be something where it affects three percent of patients, or is it going to be thirty percent of patients? Because if it's thirty, then I'm wrong, and I'm happy to eat that. But if it's three percent, I, I think that's something that's actually let me look it up. <laughs> but if, if, but that's what I'm saying, like if, if it's a three percent type of thing, I think that's something that's at least worth exploring. You know, that's that's kind of my my curiosity with it. Where, so, where does it become an unacceptable number? Right. And that, I, I don't know. I don't have that answer. And that's, you know, the the argument at the individual level is always going to be like, well, you know, if it was my mother, I wouldn't want that done, which is I and I, you're shaking your head, which like, it, I, yeah, I get it. That's just because I don't no. like my mom. <laughs> <laughs> I am so sorry, mom. I'm kidding. Exactly. Sorry. So but, but, but that's the thing. Right. So there I'm sure there is a number that okay. that we determined. Quick to pub, PubMed search. Uh, this is a study by uh, Miller et al. Uh, this was in 2011. Uh, basically, and sorry, I'm reading the abstract. I don't have time to get into the whole looking at the, you know. We'll, the, assume, the it, we'll assume it's a good sample and we'll, a well-executed We'll assume study. that a sample is pretty decent. Uh, they're basically saying that um, symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage, major systemic hemorrhage, and angioedema, 6%, 2%, 5% of their patients. So, yeah, you give TPA to... 100 people you're gonna have close to you know six or seven or ten might have a major problem right so what what what's the percentage of people that i so i, I guess the question becomes a, what what's the percentage of people that would be that would have reduced outcomes anyway is there actually a difference between the two of them and again i think i don't have the answer to this this is just this is you know kind of the expression because like i said this the study that nolte put out it's very new. I think this came out in April or May of this year. So it's a it's a new enough thing that we don't really have the answer or the explanation to it. So and I, and I guess the bigger thing too, without in the absence of data, if this is put out to you guys like, hey, check it out, we're going to be giving this new medication um, for patients that fit X, Y, and Z criteria, is that something that you'd be willing to do, knowing that this type of variable exists? I think I would only be able to participate in that if I had no shit factor. 
Okay. There's gotta be a, there's gotta be a backup. So if I can't get a tube, I have a superglottic airway that right. I could do. If I don't have, you know, if there's um, a problem with giving nitro, I have fluid. So okay. if you're gonna give me um, TPA or you know whatever other alternative you have, while TXA is a good you know way to stop bleeding, what's another way that I can reverse my my intervention? Right. You know, how can I compensate for the fact that this person is, I made this person worse mm. and now that's on me. So not only am I bringing a critical patient into a, a hospital, I'm bringing a critical patient into a hospital that I have now messed up further. So how do I fix that? Right. If you give me an alternative treatment, you know, something like, oh my God, I did something wrong and now I can fix it. Absolutely. I think that that's, you know, it's better than nothing. But so just, just one more thing while I'm surfing the internet while you guys are talking this out um american academy of emergency medicine uh aaem puts out a put out a position statement um they quote that the the nine study um that bleeding in the brain occurred in ischemic stroke in about one out of 18 patients receiving tpa that's about 5.8 percent now here's the thing you might not think that's a big deal but of those people, forty-five percent died. It was a forty-five percent fatality. I think. Actually, I think you said that. I think you said that five percent. I think everybody's eyebrows raised when you said yeah. that because that's a shocking number to that's me. That's high. Yeah. Right. That's, and con- the complications were more likely with people older, over seventy, people with more severe stroke symptoms. So if you have an NIH over fifteen, which is not hard to do in a pretty decent stroke, right. um, or with glucose over three hundred milligrams per deciliter, so. You look at the presentation of most of your pre-hospital stroke patients, that is rolling the dice without, you know, even with you having a non-contrast CT. Right. Yeah, that sounds like the house is going to win, too, and that's not a gamble I'm taking. It's it's a potential problem. I mean, if it comes down to being completely debilitated and possibly dealing with this, that might be, that's that's the risk-benefit you have to weigh. But empirically doing it? Uh, you know, yeah. I want to make sure I've got. I want to make sure. sure I've got all that co- exclusion criteria. Right. I got to make. I want to make sure that I'm that I'm looking that's, at it, everything. To me, that, to me, that's got to be a treatment of last resort. I look. I, I like. I said we were. You know, my shop is a is a comprehensive stroke center. Um, TPA is something that we really are pretty comfortable with giving um, in the emergency department and outside the emergency department. Uh, but I can tell you that it's it's a very, very clear it, there is a very healthy respect for that medication and the potentials of what it can do. So and, and again, like I my point was it's a, it's a devil's advocate thing, right? Because we're as things are evolving and as they're growing, we're going to see different points. where We have different, uh, you know, different treatments that are available. So I think that that's with the data that's coming out now. And like I said, just, I'm just basing this off the AHA thing. If we can better patient outcomes. I think it's a way to do it. If it's if it's not the case, and again, this is what well, you're reading is a position paper. It's not necessarily, um, you know, it, w- there's there's more things that have to come out of it. So, no, I agree. So, but yeah, that that should give you a pause. Oh sure, no. I, and again, this isn't. I'm not dying to give you know to a place in the field, but um, I I do think that there's long term there probably has to be some kind of treatment that we can give as opposed to just recognizing a stroke. Now again, this might come back to our original point where you know uh, something like a mobile stroke unit might be a more appropriate intervention writ large where if you have a unit that can just kind of get out and do a ct to you know whatever patient you find fits stroke criteria that might end up being a better treatment option yeah but now you have a patient you've given tpa to in the field and then you still have that long bumpy ride to the hospital i do not take patients who are actively receiving tpa and we 
if it's running, we wait mm-hmm. because of the possibilities of hitting a hard bump and you're going to start a new bleed, which, again, that's in a stable environment, right, a what, hospital. What, right. What I'm saying is in the absence of just arbitrarily giving TPA, you have you know a stroke unit that can come out, run a CT, and then you can confirm it actually. Then that is when you would actually start it in the field is what I'm saying. Right, right. Even on the, the one mobile stroke unit that works in our area um, in out of the you know out of where we're familiar with uh once tpa is started once the bolus gi- is given um they don't they don't start moving until everything's settled right once the infusion starts whole nother story absolutely and that's exactly going back to my point like if we're even even on the mobile stroke unit us in the field if we were to hypothetically roll out tpa for any suspected stroke because maybe the risk is low you're still talking about moving that patient and it's something for me going if I'm not going helipad to helipad where there's an ambulance ride in between where I'm going, we get overly cautious about patients who've received TPA. And we, like you said, we wait for things to settle down because one hard bump, one misstep, so sure, to speak. Sure, it could cause problems. You're, I mean, absolutely. Uh, you know, the one thing is the mobile, these mobile units are not mobile. You got to understand that. They come, they come out to the patient. You're bringing basically the capabilities of a primary stroke center to the patient. You're sitting there for a while because you're going to do the CAT scan. Generally, they have a six-slice, six eight-slice scanner. Uh, they don't have the ability to do CTA. They don't, um, it doesn't get low enough into the patient. I think there's one unit now that actually has a scanner that you can get to the, you know, to the place where you need to be uh, to do CTA. Um, that being said, you're sitting there. And that's one of the big things that you see with, with patients, you know, with people interacting with this is, um, you know, from people that I've talked to that, that have interacted with stroke units are like, well, why aren't they going to the hospital? Well, the hospital's there. Right. You know, because you bring in a pre-hospital stroke um, to your, most of your primary stroke centers, where do they go first? CAT scan. CAT scan. They go right Hopefully. to scan, right? right? Well, there's your non-contrast scan. It's done. Now you do your, what happens next? Well, it'd be the line of treatment would be the... Right. Right, Generally, they're going to rule out things if it hasn't been ruled out by the paramedic unit. They're going to do right. an NIH. Right. But yeah. we already know that FAST or BFAST and RACE correlate to NIH. So we have that done out in the field. Um, they've got a neurologist that they call. Generally, it's on a telemedicine link. Uh, some units do have a neurologist that rides with them, but most of them are remote. Uh, the neurologist goes does the NIH with the crew. Um, and then they release, you know, that's where they make the decision on TPA. They go through the exclusion criteria and then they start moving. So you're there. It's it's mobile means we just bring the front door of the stroke center to you. Right. So and, and this is something that we've talked about a lot where we discuss, you know, expanding the paramedic practice and have, you know, other tools and, and devices available to us. Um, and, you know, that I on the if we're imagining a bell curve, I guess, to the right side of the bell curve of paramedic care would be a mobile stroke in it. Right. Um, but beyond that, because again, there's only you said there's only ten in the country, um, in the United States. So, and you know, there's there's others throughout Europe, but you know, it's not it's not a um, a we'll call it a prevalent type of practice. So, in the end, we know that stroke care is going to come down to timing and recognition. So, writ large, do we think that there's actually a reason that we've decided that stroke is an ALS treatable illness? Um, aside from that we're so damn good at our jobs that we can treat strokes or is it more the eye roll in the scoff was flipping, good no that was me flipping my hair back like of course we are so, <laughs> so good i'm the champion i don't have that hair. um or is it that it's actually it, it can actually be um more of a bls type of intervention as opposed to because in reality what do we actually do for strokes 
Like, why why would Stroke be an ALS dispatch? We're there large? just in case. Yes. Which is what we're there for all the time, right? It's, it's always a just in case. 90, that's, 95% that's of our calls are there just in case this patient who's kind of sick gets much sicker real quick. Sure. So the question then is, is there any tangible reason that stroke care is not a BLS intervention or a, a BLS treatment option? So as, as BLS education kind of stands now in our area, um, I think we're calling paramedics for stroke because we teach our, our EMTs to be scared of it. There is something that we just don't understand. We don't give them enough, enough exposure to it. Um, and in the end of it, it's, it's it comes down to the assessment. So have you taught your, your BLS provider, you know, your, your BFAST scale or your Miami scale or your Cincinnati or how to combine the three of them? My, my shop doesn't. So I, I, I like that. What do, you, what, do you think that, what do you think that BLS providers are afraid of for stroke? Or, how, or why do you think they're taught to be afraid of it? Because it's a big scary thing, and that's really <laughs> that's, what, well, that's really what because, it comes down to. Because that, like, it's a thing in the it's brain. It's a stroke, and, then, and, then, and it's a bad thing. And you know, the the bad outcome is what we're teaching them to be scared of. Is that at one point or another, this person's having a stroke, so therefore you have a life risk right, right then. That was exactly what I was going to say. They're, you're teaching them to be afraid, or uh, not you, but be less not me. Programs not you, now. Anna. They're I'm teaching them to be scared of anything where the patient might die for, as a result of. Right. They're well, not they should be. Oh, absolutely. We all, <laughs> should, we all should Let's be. Let's be honest, there's, there's, dude, a come difference, on. there's a difference between a healthy respect for a stroke and being outright scared of it. No, absolutely. And that that's exactly the key, right? So we, we exist as ALS providers just in case, which is literally the reason that we're here. And I don't think it's a matter of not encouraging healthy respect for an illness, but how do we actually, you know... <laughs> like how do, how do we describe to our EMT students, like, listen, if someone has a stroke, what's the worst thing that's going to happen to them? They're gonna, right. they're, they're gonna, they're, like, they're gonna die. They're gonna arrest, right? right? But is it possible that you know, improving their outcome and moving them to the hospital faster, you know, in the absence of sitting around waiting for a medic unit, is going to lead to a better long-term outcome? Because again, realistically, and you might be able to pull this up um, on your laptop, Dan, is how many stroke patients actually lose their airway or go into cardiac arrest pre-hospitally? I've had you know, one. Quit. That's a broad. I that's in, that's broad. In yeah. I don't know if we can get the etiolo- the actual etiology down. I mean, most of the, you know. That's a that's a tough one. I listen. Just I think I, I'm talking about patients who haven't already lost. Like, that's what I mean. I'm not I, talking about going into a cardiac arrest. I, I'm talking about going into a patient who has you know a, an aphasia um, or you know they have a, a unilateral deficit. How many of those patients do? We, and again, I don't know that we're so able if to you've find got a patient it, that's but. altered, that's aphasic, that's not maintaining their airway, that's flaccid on the right. They already have a high NIH. They already have a high race score. That's somebody that absolutely is critically ill. And yeah, we need to take the airway, but we also need to get them to the right place and have the knowledge. Um, BLS providers need to understand, you know, fast, be fast, whatever pre-hospital scoring scale you're going to use. I mean, I have my favorites, but they got to use it and they've got to recognize when there's a situation. I think the role of the paramedic coming in is now, once we get that Cincinnati positive, that fast positive, whatever, the paramedic comes in as the role, as the person to make the determination, okay, I already know I've got a neuro thing going on. How bad is it? Where does this person need to go? And what resources do I need to bring to bear? Last know well is huge. We know if they're out of the, we know, then that's the one thing that I think basic providers and EMS providers as a whole, we blow that off. But you don't real we don't realize how critically important last known well is to surviving a stroke or getting out of it with a with a good um, good functional outcome um, because that really is where they make their decisions that's where the big the, you know the big guns make their call um, last no well deter- determines TPA determines whether you have the ability to go 
for thrombectomy. It depends on whether we're even going to have a chance to do anything because they know that right now, most of the studies indicate that 24 hours out, the window's closed for everything. Sure. And I, um, it used to be three hours hard stop for TPA and, you know, a little bit after that, maybe if you had a place that did thrombectomy. Now we're starting to see that that TPA window is going out to four and a half hours. Some places are going six hours. And for thrombectomy, it used to be 12. Our shop was doing 12. And the Dawn study came out and we went to 24 uh, because they're getting good functional outcomes from it. Um, Dawn trial was uh, it was published in New England Journal of Medicine. Um, I'll get the date hold here. Um Back in uh, 28, this was January 4th, 2018, I should remember, because it was a huge game, game changer in my shop. Basically, everything changed after this. Uh, and basically, what it said was that people uh, had significantly better um, functional outcomes if we, got, if we gave them thrombectomy out to 24 hours. Um, some of the numbers are really, really interesting. Um, one of the things that they said was, out of every three people, okay, that got thrombectomy, um, one additional patient had a better score. For every two patients who went underwent thrombectomy, one additional patient had a better score for disability at 90 days. Um, and for every 2.8 patients who underwent thrombectomy, one additional patient had functional independence at 90 days. Okay, so that's an MRS of zero or one. Those That's huge. That's a number needed to treat of three. All right, Dan, going off this study, do you, working at a uh, comprehensive center, do you believe that thrombectomy is actually definitive care for an ischemic stroke? I think for certain strokes. I think for large vessel occlusion strokes, absolutely. I think for your minor strokes where you have a low uh, race or a low NIH, not so much. So what do you think of the future and potential efficacy going forward with TPA? Do you think it's going to grow with now with the increasing window, or do you think it's going to shrink with now the prevalence of thrombectomy? Well, to be fair, TPA is already already moving out the window. They've right, already, they, right. They, but they, as we are, are, are you talking about like TPA in general? or like, he's talk, like I'm, I'm, or talking, like, I'm talking kind of like TPA in general because he said it went from three hours, now we're expanding right. to four and a half. So there are different treatments for different types of strokes. So where do you see, because you are definitely like on the front line of this as a, as a clinical coordinator, like where are you seeing it going? I, I, I see TPA as a tool. I don't think it's a panacea. I think when it first came in, we we're like, oh, clot buster, it's going to be great. But very, a very small percentage of people actually get better with just TPA. Um, just like when we did it with cardiac care. I think in the beginning, we were, they were giving, um, you know, T- they were giving TPA or they were giving the, uh, the what it was, streptokinase? Streptokinase. Streptokinase, urokinase. Um, you know, okay. some of the first generation uh, thrombolytics for, for MIs. And then they found out that, hey, going and getting the clot makes a difference. Uh, I think that's where we're at right now. I think that's kind of what I was getting at because um, giving like a clot busting agent in a cardiac um, STEMI patients or, you know, myocardial infarction patients is clearly the second, if at any, compared to balloon. Get them to a balloon, to a mm-hmm. stent, to but angioplasty. In in some of the in some of the studies on stroke, what they're finding is that TPA plus thrombectomy gives the best outcomes. Right, and and even then, like I said, with the the emerging tenecteplase stuff, that's going to be that's going to be different too. But but I think with these these medications are so high powered, again. It's not something you want to be given empirically. It's not something that I want to give without a look inside that head and see what's oh, going sure. on. Because even in one of one out of eighteen or those numbers we were talking about, that's a person who didn't have any signs of bleeding. Okay, 
Now, when you think about this, you know, remember, everybody that got TPA got a non-contrast CT. And then they got they got the TPA. And all of a sudden, now they got a bleed. Right. 45% of those people died. Yeah, which is, and that that's a... That's an upsetting it's a number. Heck of a rolling <laughs> of the high, dice. High number. But I mean, if you're if it's the difference between you living with you know skilled nursing care for the rest of your life or walking out of the hospital, you know, if the patient has informed consent and understands the risks and benefits, that's something that's a dice roll a lot of people will take. Oh sure. And I like I say, it's it's a it's a super complex issue, and this is something that we managed to go through uh coming up to a hard out without even talking about, you know, wake up strokes and Hitting eight, eight, ten hour windows and all that kind or of any stuff. Wake up strokes don't exist. Stroke. Listen, yeah. wake up strokes don't exist anymore in these guidelines under the new stuff that's right. come out. It doesn't matter. Okay, the only thing that the only thing that that matters about is are we going to give them TPA or are we going to take them straight to a comprehensive center? I don't know, Dan. I've been going to sleep for twenty four hours in a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've managed to sleep I, whole days. That's I called lost a coma. Them. They're gone. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't take a but, nap. I took a coma. It's hibernation. But we but think about it. We used to go to houses, and you know, when was the last time you saw him? Well, oh, well, he went to bed around ten o'clock. We'd be like, all right, forget it. We're done. Well, you I know, mean like, that. I mean that right there. Comprehensive, like. Yeah. Right. And, and that, now that, that's, that's where we saying. need that's to be what, considering. That's changing, and that's right. where that's where if I was going to recommend something or, or I was going to say for people to go back to their medical directors, go back to their agencies. That's where we got to push this. We've got to think about, you know, we need to start. And that's where the medics, the paramedic role is so important as, oh, I know this stuff. Oh, this person fits this. This person doesn't fit this. I don't know that a basic provider at this point, an EMT has that knowledge and education basis the paramedics should and that's the that's where you can affect the biggest outcomes nobody cares about the iv nobody cares about the other stuff the monitor is not important what is important is you bringing your brain to the patient knowing what's available and bringing that to bear so that patient has the best possible chance at a functional outcome Right, and that's the whole point of stroke care. So we're going to wrap that up from there. Uh, please, on this topic, make sure to add us on Twitter at Overrun EMS. We're also on Instagram and Facebook at Overrun Productions, uh, overrunproductions.com. Be sure to leave comments. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, G, uh, Google Play, um, and pretty much free, at this point anywhere that you can listen to your podcasts. Yeah, we're on uh, everything right now. We have all the things. We're slowly taking over the podcast world. The Overrun oh. Empire. The sun <laughs> yeah. never sets on Almost. the Overrun Empire. Um, so please also rate, review, subscribe, uh, comment. We want to know what you guys think about this because this is something that is it's it's controversial. There's a lot of things that are happening. It's cutting edge. We're gonna we're gonna be we're gonna be back to this subject. This is the bleeding edge. Oh yeah, yeah. This is not this is not the only time we're ever gonna talk about this either. So um, for the first time we're talking about strokes, but I'm sure we're just gonna keep on uh, keeping on with this. So for the overrun, I'm Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. I'm Kevin Mazza. I'm Anna Ryan. And we will talk to you next time. Get home safe. Bye.